Thank you, Grant. <clears throat> Good morning, Harbour City and visitors. Really, it's a privilege to be standing here and speaking today. If we haven't met, my name is Sonia. I'm married to Shane Cadman, one of the, the leaders in the church. And we've got two small kids, Holly and Jack. Jack will be six at the end of this month, and Holly is seven years old. Um, like Grant said, if you haven't been with us for the last five weeks, we've been going through the Transformed series, series through emotional and spiritual health. The crux of the series is really that emotional health and spiritual health go hand in hand. We cannot be spiritually mature, where we attend church, our prayer life is amazing, we quote scriptures and we quote theologians, but emotionally we're lacking, we're immature, we battle to forgive, we hold on to hurts, we shout at our spouses, so they go hand in hand and we grow them together. So if you want to catch up on this series, it has been recorded, it's on the website and podcast, you're welcome to, to listen. While I was preparing for today, I was a bit anxious and a little bit insecure to um, chat about the topic today, which is how we grow through grief and loss. You see, one, what I do is I look at what I consider loss in my life, my grief, my struggles, and I compare it to things that I would categorize as major losses. To me, that would be a disability. It would be a long-term illness. It would be the death of a loved one, which I haven't experienced. So if I compare what I've gone through then I think it's so insignificant. It's really so, so small. And a friend of mine recently went through a tremendous amount of loss in a short space of time. She lost three generations of men in her life. First, she lost her grandson of four to cancer, then her son of 24, and then her father. That's three generations gone. So when I naturally compare my loss to what she's gone through, it's nothing. But we cannot compare our walks, individual walks in this area, to other people. Perhaps one of the reasons why difficult times or even death come as such a shock is because we actually don't expect it. Have you ever been at an air show and you're looking into the sky and these pilots are doing the most amazing acrobatic tricks and they leave those little loops in the sky and out of nowhere comes this jet fighter, the ground is trembling and this almighty noise just whizzes past you, like you drop your food on the floor and spill your Coke on your neighbor. But it's that shock, that unexpected thing that happened. And sometimes hard times or even death can hit us like that because we think, well, why must I go through it? And why is that? But that nowadays through social media, we have the world at our fingertips. We see the devastating effects of hurricanes. We see how... Terrorism affects people. It's horrendous. But then when we go through uh, troubles and hard times, we're so surprised. Why why me? Why must I go through that? I think two major views that we have might be misconceptions when we approach this topic. And that would be one is, if God is in control, why do bad things happen? And the second one would be, you only live once. This life is all there is. If we look at what it means for God to be in control, the word control is really someone who manipulates and who forces situations and people to suit their own need. So it's like the picture of a puppeteer manipulating puppets. So to control something would be for the puppeteer to control and manipulate the puppet to suit his own will. The puppet has no no opinion, no choices whatsoever. But when we read the Bible we see that God is sovereign. There's a difference between control and sovereign. 
God has complete ownership over us, but he offers choices with consequences attached to that. So my choices, whether good or bad, will affect you because those are the outworkings of the consequences. What is the first question you hear when people go through tremendous difficulty? Often it's the question, why, am I, why me? Why? If God is in control, why did I lose my job? If God is in control, why did so-and-so die? God is not God because he controls and manipulates things so that I can have a happily, end up, happily ever after ending. But he's sovereign in everything, and he's sovereign over everything. And in his kindness, he uses those difficult times to massage and to shape and to mold our hearts so that at the end, our lives will reflect of who Jesus is. We've bought into this lie that if I'm a good person and I live a pretty good life, nothing really, really bad will happen to me. I might have a few hiccups here and there or unpleasant things happen. Nothing really, really bad will happen to me. If you think about it, that's Christian karma. And we've bought into that lie. We view hardships, we view illnesses, we view death. We see those as punishments from God. And we try and avoid those as much as we can. But let's look at Jesus, who's ultimately our example, and he sets the benchmark. If we use our Christian karma view, we look at his life, and what do we see? We see that he lived a really, really good life. He never lied. He never cheated on his taxes. He never hated anyone. I can't claim those things. But yet he had horrible things happen to him. He was rejected by his own people. He died a gruesome death. The second misconception and view that we have when we talk about this topic <clears throat> is that we only live once. Make it the best one you can. We flippantly, as Christians, talk about heaven one day, the afterlife. We talk about the crowns we'll wear, the rewards we'll get, the golden paved roads, our glorified bodies, ladies. Aren't you grateful for that? But do we really believe and live in the reality that as followers of Jesus, when we die, we will live forever? <clears throat> in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 13, Tabani, if you could just bring this up. Paul is speaking here to people that have lost people to death, followers of Jesus. And this is what he's saying. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Here Paul is saying, grieve, but don't grieve without hope. Remember the song we just sang, the day and the trouble will come? There's almost like a given here. We will go through hard times, but there's a hint that we can do it in the right way or the wrong way. And as followers of Jesus, the right way for us to grieve is to grieve in hope. It's never in the absence of hope. And our hope is that this life is not all there is. It's a mere breath compared to what we will experience with Jesus forever. Our hope is that Jesus Christ lived a very, very good life. He lived the perfect life that I should have lived, but I've never done. And he died the death that I should have died so that I can live a life with him that I don't deserve when you hear the word heaven, just quickly think, what picture comes to mind? 
if you'd asked me a few years ago, it would be like the typical picture of a, of a kiddie's Bible with the lion and the lamb grazed together, and you have happy people with curly hair. They've got choir robes on, worshiping. If that is your picture, it was mine for a very long time. We need to adjust our expectation. We really have so much more to look forward to than just that serene little picture. Our hope is that Jesus was well acquainted with disappointments, with hurt, with sorrow. We read in Isaiah 53, He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. The Bible says that he's been there. He knows what we're going through. He can empathize with us. And in Hebrews 4 verse 15, we read, We do not have a high priest, that's referring to Jesus, who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. And our hope is that this life that we live on earth is really like a sniff compared to eternal life. Have you ever been in the Drakensberg or any super cold place, and when you breathe out, there's like smoke coming out your mouth for two to three seconds. When you breathe, and then it's gone. This is what this life is like compared to eternity. And if we believe that this life is all there is, when I breathe my final breath, then I will desperately try to make this life as fun, as stress-free and pain-free as possible. I'll try my very best. So how do we process grief and loss appropriately? There's many ways that we can, can apply it, but there's just two things I'd like to highlight this morning. And the one is that we do it in community. God has added us to, to a body of believers, to people who love you, and we celebrate together and we cry together. If we look at how people processed hurt and disappointments and losses millennia ago, it's completely different to how we do it now. Back then, it was quite a public thing. People would cry. They would mourn in public. People knew when they were going through hard times. People were verbal, spoke about it. Some people even wrote songs and poems and would be read in church meetings just like this. But nowadays, it's so private. We sometimes hide our sadnesses and our disappointments. Sometimes we don't even tell people when we're hurting. It's almost like we try and get over things quickly to move on. Because we view it as an obstacle, as something that shouldn't be there. Our hurts and disappointments are packaged and contained, and it's so serene. And it's so not what the body of Christ is about. Of course, there will be times where you have to be alone. You have to process things, pray in God's presence. David used to shake his fist at heaven and say, Lord, where are you? Those things are so appropriate, and we need that. But the point I'm trying to make is that we don't do it alone. We do it in community. And Shane and I had, I guess it's a privilege to have had just a taste of what the community is really about. When Before we had Holly, um, we had two miscarriages, almost back to back. And I know lots of couples prefer not to announce a pregnancy before the three-month mark, and that's great. Uh, we decided to do that. So as soon as I felt pregnant, we announced to friends and family, and surprise, had the miscarriage. And had we not told our community, we would have gone through that all alone. All our sadness, questions, 
And in that time, it was just beautiful how people loved on us. Some ladies I didn't even know. One lady came up to me and said she had seven miscarriages, one after the other. And it was just, the healing doesn't come through community. It's through God alone, but it makes it easier. The second thing I think we should just um, bear in mind <clears throat> how to approach this topic and how the healing comes is really just in God's presence alone. Like I said, it's not the community that bring the healing, but God. We need to find God in our story. We need to find him in our hurt, in our disappointment, in the death, in the hardships. Because the place of pain can be where we grow in our understanding of who God is, understand his character. And the healing comes as a byproduct when we look for him. We discover his kindness and his grace. Jerry Sitzer is um, an author, and he lost, like my friend, he lost three generations of women in his life in one car accident that he was in. He lost his mother, his wife, and his daughter. And this is what he writes. However painful, sorrow is good for the soul. The soul is elastic like a balloon. It can grow larger through suffering. I haven't experienced the death of a loved one yet. I don't know what your life story is. I don't know what you would consider a loss or the things that you grieve over. But is your loss perhaps the death of a loved one? Or is it a miscarriage? Or perhaps it's infertility? Maybe your loss is less public. Maybe it's not so obvious. And it's the death of a dream. Maybe you had a dream for how your life would turn out and it hadn't. Is your loss the dysfunctional family you were born into? Or maybe it's a deep friendship that has died. Is it your singleness or perhaps your current marriage? Is what you count a loss when you uh, moved out of home? You had to stand on your own two feet. Or maybe it's when your kids moved out of home. Maybe you're grieving over that. That's your loss. Or maybe it's just simply the mistakes that we make in life, the bad choices. And now you're bearing the natural consequences. Or perhaps it's just normal life, our aging bodies, added wrinkles. We try and Botox, try, <laughs> try and fix it. We need glasses, your back ache. We can laugh about some of these things. But the point is not to calculate where your loss is on the spectrum of major to minor or from public to private, sudden to gradual. It's to admit what is a loss to you and what you're grieving over in God's presence. And with any loss or grieving comes various forms of emotional pain and various forms of grief, and that's appropriate. It doesn't matter how comfortable or cushy your life has been or not. I've sort of, I slot myself into that category. But the point is we grow up and we realize this life is not all we had hoped it to be. We all experience loss, and it's part of life. It's part of the cycle. And loss is loss. My loss and what I grieve over might not be yours. So whatever your hardship or your disappointment is or the things you grieve over, in the light of what our hope is in Jesus, we bring it to him. And in the place of our pain, our loss, our grieving, that's where we grow. It's an opportunity to grow in our understanding of God's character, who he is, and we find him. The healing is a byproduct. And at the end of my life, God's not going to be impressed and reward me for a life uh, void of pain and difficulty that I try and avoid. 
he's going to reward me for having my heart molded and shaped and massaged and at the end of my life, hopefully, will represent something of who Jesus is. And I've just merely touched on two aspects of how to approach this topic. And there are many more. And the beauty is um, that we hear it in community. And I'd like to introduce Michelle, my mum fundis, to you. <laughs> Thanks, Michelle. Thanks, sons. I think that was such an amazing um, word. You're a great preaching buddy. Um, everyone, it's a real privilege to speak to you this morning. And uh, I knew once and for all there'd be no special treatment from Grant when he told me the topic of my preach would be growing through grief and loss. I read the email and honestly, I thought, wow, what a bummer. Nobody is going to be fist pumping for this one. And um, if I'm truly honest, preparing for this preach has been a fairly difficult thing for me. Um, It's made me think about a lot of things I try not to think about and um, dredge up some things that I'd rather have pushed far down. And whether I was excited for this preach or not, it really is such an important one. And even with that, I felt the pressure and the delicacy of this topic. Unfortunately, grieving and loss really is just part of life. Tim Keller says, no matter what precautions we take, no matter how well we have put together a good life, No matter how hard we've worked to be healthy, wealthy, comfortable with friends and family, and successful with our career, something will inevitably ruin it. How is that for a depressing quote? I'd love to see that pop up on Instagram every now and again. (laughs) And although that sounds pretty bleak, it is in fact true. Um, Just from thinking about who could be in the room this morning, I know some of you have had to endure some very hard things And the truth is we all go through losses in some degree or another, like Sonia was saying. We lose loved ones, marriages, friendships, jobs, dreams, and even hopes for the future. For me personally, I feel like I managed to glide through life uh, relatively unscathed by these things. Sure, there were difficulties and harder times, but I only truly had to face grieving and loss in my 20s which, to be honest, have felt far too full of these things at times. And as I prepared for this preach, I really feel that God opened up this topic of grief and loss in my life again, not to unnecessarily hurt me, but to gently challenge me and heal me. And I believe he wants to do the same with some of you here today. Without realizing it, I've reacted to a lot of difficult things in life with a fairly stoic attitude. I don't think of myself as a super strong person. Um, And yes, um, there were tears and tenderness, but really I had this grit in my teeth and just get through it. Don't dwell on the tough stuff. Just keep pushing it down till it disappears type of attitude. And probably if I'm honest, I felt like that was the right response. Um, The only problem is these things don't just disappear into an abyss. They just become a little less painful as time goes by. And to use Grant's illustration of a landmine from the other week, to lie just below the surface until something touches it and it feels very real and very painful again. And the truth is, time doesn't heal all wounds. It's what you do with your pain, grief, and loss over time that determines whether you heal or whether the suffering begins to define you. I think one of the lies I believed is that 
Jesus is not a God I can take sorrow and grief to. He's not a God who wants to hear the cries of our heart and hear the very hard things we are thinking and asking. And that is a lie. Yes, we serve a God who is sovereign, but we also serve a God who has suffered. And I think one of my favorite things of going through this transformed series um, is really to see Jesus through a new lens, that he was fully human and had the full range of emotions that we have, but also he, ex- he handled every experience perfectly. It's an incredibly freeing thought. Not only that, but as we look through the Bible, we see the prophets and the people of the Bible experiencing very hard times and saying very hard things, and God is there through it all. If we read through the book of Job or some of the Psalms, they are brutally honest accounts of people crying out to God. And God doesn't run away when the going gets tough. He stays with them throughout. One of my favorite accounts of Jesus experiencing grief and loss um, on the earth comes in John 11. I'm sure many of you would know the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead. To recap the story, Lazarus is the brother of Mary and Martha. The Bible says Jesus loved the family. At the beginning of chapter 11, Jesus is in a town about one day's journey away from the family, and he gets news that Lazarus is very sick. And instead of leaving straight away to go visit his friend, he stays. He continues his ministry and his teaching. And after a few days, he heads to Lazarus's home, discerning that Lazarus has died. And he says to his disciples, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. He says that Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days by the time Jesus arrived. And lots of people had already gathered around the family to mourn with them. And on his way into the town, um, Martha, Lazarus's sister, meets him. And Jesus calls for Mary, his other sister. From verse 28, it'll come up on the screen behind me. It says, she went, it says about Martha, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher, Jesus, is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. When he sa- and he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, Jesus wept. From there, the story goes on. Um, Lazarus, Le- Jesus goes to Lazarus' tomb and raises him from the dead. It's really an amazing story. And one of the things I love about this account of Jesus is really his empathy. I'm not sure if you've ever thought about it, but it's really interesting that Jesus wept. Before he left to visit the family, he knew that Lazarus had died, and he'd already stated to his disciples that he was going to raise him from the dead. In a sense, his arriving should have been filled with joy and happiness, knowing that he would wake Lazarus up. And yet he looks upon Mary, who falls at his feet, 
in one of the most painful moments of her life, and he cries with her. He looks upon her with empathy and compassion, and he feels her pain as if it's her own, his own. How incredible is it that we have a God so kind and so personal, a God who doesn't see our pains, our struggles, our tears as trivial. He is a God who weeps with us. Secondly, have you thought about Mary's words? Lord, if you were here, my brother would not have died. In essence, she was saying, where were you, Jesus? We needed you. And do you know what I love? Jesus doesn't reprimand her. How dare you, Mary? I'm here now. Did you not have faith in me? No, Jesus isn't offended by her painful, vulnerable, honest cries. They don't scare him off or offend him. It says he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And we don't have to hide those very painful and raw cries from Jesus. He's a God we can run to. We can fall at his feet and say the very hard things we are burdened by. As I prepared for this morning, I felt God say, I am a safe place for hard questions and hard conversations. Not only that, but Jesus does this in his own life. In his darkest moment on the cross, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Thirdly, after Jesus is confronted with Mary's question and weeps and grieves with her, he goes with her to see Lazarus. He goes with her to her place of pain. For us, it isn't enough to um, know that God cares and to pour out our struggles and feelings before him. To be transformed, we must allow God into the place of pain in our lives and allow him to come and to heal and to bring life from death. He wants to go on that journey with us. I remember um, just after my dad passed away, I kept saying to Grant, I just want to grieve well. And I almost felt a pressure to that. I felt that it was up to me to hold it together and to um, just do the right thing and um, pull it together myself. And honestly, it was a huge weight to carry. And I constantly fell short. I remember standing in church during worship and struggling to sing songs about God's goodness because I knew God was good. But at that moment, I didn't feel it. And you can imagine Mary in the story feeling the same way when she confronted Jesus. Where were you, Jesus? I thought you were a God who would be here. And maybe you're feeling the same way today. The good news is we believe a gospel that says Jesus lived the perfect life in our place. He responded perfectly in every situation. When he died on the cross and experienced the worst feelings of grief and loss the world has ever seen, he did so perfectly. So that as you and I believe in him and walk the hard roads that life brings, we can look to him as an example, yes, but also without the pressure to be perfect and carry the weight of that. We can rest in the grace our salvation gives us and ask the Holy Spirit to help us in our weaknesses and to empower us to walk with Jesus through our suffering. About a week ago, um, as I was preparing for this message, I felt God give me a picture. I hope it's not a bit cheesy, it might be. But I, I saw a picture of something the Japanese called kintsugi, which I'm sure I've pronounced perfectly. Um, some pictures will come up behind me. 
The idea behind kintsugi is that when a vase or a plate breaks or cracks, it's not thrown away. Instead, they use a silver or a gold lacquer to stick the objects back together. It's been said this repair method celebrates each artifact's unique history by emphasizing its fractures and breaks instead of hiding or disguising them. Kintsugi often makes the repaired piece even more beautiful than the original revitalizing it with new life. And as I saw the picture of the Kintsugi vase, I just felt that there were some people who are going to be here this morning who have been feeling broken and cracked and maybe for a very long time. And God is wanting to come with his incredible love and power and redeem your brokenness and pain. And he's not a God who just wants to stick us back together and pretend like nothing bad has ever happened. He wants to come into those deep, aching parts of our lives and bring us healing, the gold which will tell of his goodness despite the pain. Where you have areas where you feel um, will always stay cracked and ugly and broken, he wants to redeem and make beautiful. Maybe like for me, this is a very scary, vulnerable thing to allow God into that part of your life. But he is a God we can trust. He is a God who is kind And he is a God who shows compassion for those he loves. I'd just love, um, as I close now, to pray for us. So maybe Wisey and the band can come up and everyone can stand. Father, I just thank you that... You are a God we can go to with our griefs, with our losses, with our struggles. And Father, we can fall at your feet in our most vulnerable, painful times. And you weep with us, Jesus. You are not scared of our hard questions, God, but you are there. You are faithful always. And Jesus, I pray for those who are here today who are feeling broken, who are feeling in pain, who are going through loss, that God, you would come into their lives and you would redeem them. You would come with your incredible, comforting power and make them whole. And God, I thank you that the pressure to be perfect isn't on us, Jesus, but you have come and lived the perfect life in our place. And that is a good, good gospel to believe in. So Holy Spirit, would you come now as we open our hearts to areas that perhaps we haven't opened before and would you bring your healing? Thank you, Jesus.